Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guests on today's show are Raylan Lambert, John Jackson, and Eric Seabush, three of the leaders at Mercer Alternatives, the alternative investment arm of the consulting juggernaut. Mercer advises on $16.5 trillion of assets and manages $400 billion, 
of which $160 billion under advisement and $25 billion under management, is under the Mercer Alternatives umbrella. Raylan is Mercer's global alternatives leader. John is the head of diversifying alternatives, its hedge fund group. And Eric is the global strategy leader in venture capital. Our conversation provides a glimpse inside Mercer. Raylan shares an overview of the alternatives business. John delves into the hedge fund research process that informs its approved list. And Eric does the same for venture capital. Before we get going, following up from the last spread the word when I went to create an auto response on LinkedIn messaging, I found out that LinkedIn limits the number of characters you can put in that message. My actual auto-response now includes links for our mailing list, premium content, and sponsored insights application, but here's what I'd really like to say. Thanks so much for reaching out. I'm incredibly grateful you enjoy the show, and I wish I had the extra 15 minutes you and everyone else on LinkedIn requests to pick my brain. And by the way, we both know that 15 minutes would turn into a half hour because that's the minimum time block available in Outlook's calendar. It's possible you're reaching out just so you can tell your buddies we spoke. I'm cool with that. This whole podcast celeb thing is pretty awesome. So go ahead and tell them anyway. Since I just can't afford the time, I'm happy to tell you exactly what wisdom I would share, not just once, but every week. All you have to do is go to our website at capitalallocators.com and sign up for our mailing list. Even better, you can subscribe to a premium membership for just $250 and get in the inner circle. Lastly, if you're asking why you can't find the latest Private Equity Deals episode, it's because Private Equity Deals is a different podcast from Capital Allocators, just like the Tim Ferriss Show, All In, and Invest Like the Best. So go ahead and search on your podcast player. You'll find it waiting for you there. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Raylan Lambert, John Jackson, and Eric Seabush. Raylan, John, Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. This is going to be a really fun dive into Mercer. Raylan, why don't we start with you? A little bit of your path to the seat, and then we'll go into the overview of the business. I moved from New York City to Sacramento in uh, late 2005, and that's really when I got into the world of private markets. And over the years, I've pretty much led and been active in all aspects of our industry from risk management to advice to implementation to research co-investment so on and so forth and before joining mercer which joined by way of acquisition in november of 2018 i was a global head of private debt so it really been an example of somebody who really works their way up from the bottom to the top. December of 2019, the opportunity became available for me to take the helm here leading our global alternatives business. And I've been doing that ever since. What's the breadth of Mercer? It's a large business. We have around 44 offices globally. It's almost 5,000 professionals. We've got 2,500 clients that we provide advice to in one shape or form. And over 1,800 that seek our help, either on a bespoke basis, part of a total portfolio, traditional or alt assets for implementation. So it's quite a vast network that we have. How do you think about the challenge of serving so many different clients, client types, and individuals and organizations? One of the benefits that we have by having almost 5,000 individuals around the world is there are individuals that specialize, right? You've got folks that specialize in serving endowments and foundations. Globally, we have a large defined benefit corporate pension 
client segment base that we serve both on the actuarial, but also investment side, the wealth management segment. What we've been seeing over time as we continue to diversify away sort of the core client base of the DB corporate segment is increasing specialization. So now we've got global heads of, say, the financial intermediaries, global heads of NFP, global heads of insurance, and then you cascade that throughout the organization. We look to do the same thing across the investments businesses. We believe that roughly 80% of the questions that say an insurer is concerned about within their alternatives portfolios, we can probably answer that quite systematically. There's always 20% you have to really answer on a bespoke basis, but really trying to think about serving those clients as systematically, yet reserve the amount of flexibility and customization that they need. One of the things you mentioned in your coming to Mercer was an acquisition, and there have been a bunch of them over time. Curious how, from the business perspective, you think about a growth through acquisition in this space. You look at our competitors, and that's certainly fueled their growth. And I'd say being in the seat of a firm that uh, has a market cap as we do at Marsh McLennan, it gives us a lot of room and breadth to grow. But a lot of our growth, I'd say, since I have been in the seat since December of 19, has really been organic growth. You look at our AUM within alts, that's grown at a CAGR of over 20%. You look at the number of professionals that we have, we've almost doubled. For my seat, my responsibility as leading this global business is being the visionary for where we're headed. And that's from how are we going to grow organically by region, by client segment, by asset class, but also what are the inorganic growth opportunities around the world that we can look at and really augment the capabilities that we know our clients are in need of and demanding from us every day. With that scale and breadth, how do you think about what the distinctive characteristics are of Mercer? One of the things that I think about a lot is if you think about what we have as an institution and that we can show up to any client conversation and be with them where they are on their specific journey. You know, we at Mercer are agnostic to where they are. Do they need help with our research? Do they need our advice? Do they need help with implementations? We show up in the room, not about here's our latest product or here's a very specific thing that we want to push. We show up for the client. And I think the heritage of our firm, 152-year-old company, is client centricity. And so I think when you bring that together, we can have a conversation with a CIO about their risk, their return, their liquidity. We can talk to them and go deep about real estate. We can talk to them and go deep about private equity and co-investments. We can talk about their total portfolio, that dynamic of meeting the client where they are and having all the tools across that continuum, across traditional and alternative assets. It's really important. I'd say from an alt-specific point of view, I was actually looking at where the composition of our strengths, if you look at the asset class expertise as a component of our asset center management, We've got specialty advice and implementation capabilities underpinned by research across private equity, private debt, infrastructure, real estate, and hedge funds. And actually, they're each about 20% of our AUM. That, to me, signals that one of the things we do really well is we maintain that specialization. So John is part of a specialty hedge fund team. Eric is a venture capital specialist that sits within private equity. We're not having John and Eric pinch it across 10 different asset classes. So I think when you look at our alts business, almost 300 people globally, 
that enables us to maintain that specialism and do what we do best as private markets professionals and hedge fund professionals and rely on the apparatus to really be that other arm and extension to our clients. How do you structure the organization so that the client is getting from the top down, maybe it's their asset allocation to the research expertise through all of these resources that you have internally? It really starts with where the client relationship starts. So it could be through one of our investment consultants on the field, and they're advising an endowment on their total balance sheet. And that endowment says, we'd love to increase our allocation to private equity. And the next thing you know, we say, great, we're happy to help with that. Let's create a service model, define the scope. Let's then assign somebody from our private equity team to be an extension and a resource specialist to that group. How do you think about the staffing capacity model? If one person's touching a client at that senior level, how many different clients can they touch? How many researchers do you need to support that? That's a difficult question to ask. It really depends on if you're serving, we call them core clients, where they really rely on our best ideas portfolio that we're doing on behalf of clients from an implementation standpoint. You could probably have 50 plus clients, right? Because it's very systematic the way we've designed it. Now, as you move up the spectrum into more premium and bespoke client service models, then the number of clients you can serve certainly decreases. But the model that we've really tried to develop is folks like Eric and John, they're going to be relationship advocate and bringing people below them to really do some of the heavy lifting so that you can give people the experience and exposure and growth opportunity. But I'd say it really depends. It's going to be a funnel where based on the level of service, it's going to decline over time. And then usually as people get more senior, a lot of the heavy lifting on the pacing models of the detailed diligence is done by our pool of analysts across the teams. How do manager level decisions get made? It is by committee. It is brutally by committee. I'm on a few investment committees, but sat in on some of the registry committees. And the individual that carried out the research, they're expected to bring a point of view, but every individual around that table, which is our entire team, are expected to bring a point of view. How do you view the way you've built the process relative to other of your peers? I'm happy to chime in. This is Eric here. I think that we've taken the best of all worlds every time there was an acquisition. We compare the research and the process and the data that each possess, and we take a little bit of the best. Plus, we get feedback from the clients, understand what their needs are, and as market changes, things might change. But at the end of the day, much of the research is pretty similar. And then picking the managers, again, is pretty similar, but you will have a diverse group of individuals that are in investment committees. And as the fund or the opportunity is going through the process, it starts off with an initial due diligence. And there's probably a larger group that looks at it and opines on it, points out areas of diligence that's required. And then you go to the full research report. And that's a body of knowledge that is built over a long period of time. I'd love to dive in. And John, why don't we start with you? There's always this perception from the outside of a consultant, whether it's from other allocators, investors, or managers, that there's a little bit of a feeling of a black box of like, how does a consultant decide who's on their platform? And I would just love to try to demystify that from both perspectives. And maybe the way to do that is to start going through how do you determine how you're going to do research on hedge funds? It really starts with sourcing and maybe to piggyback a little bit on what Eric was just talking about. 
It's been an iterative process that has been refined over many years and through many acquisitions. We've taken the best of both worlds, but what has come out of that is we cast a pretty wide net in terms of the opportunity set that's put in front of us. When I first got in this business, I didn't even know manager research, frankly, was an industry or a career. And now I find myself around year 20. But that is the gig. That's what gets us out of bed every day is really sourcing new opportunities that hopefully make sense for our clients and can add value over time. That carries a tremendous responsibility and challenge, but at the same time, it's very rewarding when we do get it right. So I often say we're effectively the equivalent of talent scouts attempting to identify the best talent and position players, if you will, and then assembling those together in a team that can deliver results for clients. The sourcing and the due diligence is obviously the most important things we do as researchers across the firm, and we're very deliberate in how we approach it. How do you approach it? For one, it's extremely independent research function. We're given a good amount of freedom across the research team to really find what we believe to be the best opportunities that can meet our clients' needs. So it's very empowering. We definitely seek to be as unbiased and agnostic as we can. You have to turn over a lot of rocks. You have to kiss a lot of frogs. That's just part of the job. We don't want too many guardrails around what we will look at, per se. Definitely have to keep an open mind. And that's part of my job overseeing the hedge fund research process is to make sure that sort of biases and unfound views don't really make it into the sourcing efforts. On a day-to-day basis, how do you go about turning over those rocks? We take a lot of intro meetings. There's 35 members on the hedge fund team across the globe, US, Europe, Asia. On average, we take in excess of over 800 meetings a year. Roughly a third of those is spent on new opportunities or new ideas that are coming to market. So new manager launches, and those really come from a pretty broad set of inputs. So we have our own network that we've built through that team of 35 and through the experience over the years. So we know of new launches and spinouts maybe before they're actually formally announced in the market. We're obviously plugged into a lot of industry events and attend those. Very well plugged into the CAP intro community. So see what comes through that pipeline. Our clients serve as a really good source to flag opportunities for us to look at. And then, of course, we have our database, which really any manager in the world can sign up to be on. Through that, I would say we take almost every meeting that's offered. We say no more than we say yes in terms of making it through the process. But this team is dedicated to finding the new opportunities before the rest of the market identifies them and to secure that capacity for the benefit of our clients. That's what we're focused on day in and day out. What are the things that you're looking for so that a manager makes it from that initial meeting to eventually getting down the road with your clients? Yeah, I would like to say that there's a checklist that you could just work from, but in practice, it really doesn't work that way. We haven't developed an algorithm, if you will, to say, if this, then that, and that will lead us to the right path. But I think maybe some of the broader ones may be just a little bit more obvious, frankly. So we're looking for structural or cyclical inefficiencies that can be exploited. So we're looking for investments, not trades. That's pretty important. We value a pretty strong pedigree. So where you learned this craft and how you learned it and who from and those lessons learned over time are very important. In general, we like a broader, more flexible mandate. 
So particularly a capital allocation process that can be opportunistic. So if you always invest one way, look the same way at all times in all environments, that's maybe less appealing for us. Even within a smaller niche strategy, we still want some opportunism. We place a heavy emphasis on risk management. So we want a pretty dynamic and robust risk management tool set. That's part of the reason you invest in hedge funds is for the risk management framework. And I would say you have to be macro aware. Markets are much more dynamic and volatile today, maybe than 20 years ago. And so you have to use those tools to protect capital and to generate some persistency and consistency. We don't like surprises. Other stuff, thoughtful in terms of how they build the business, the team, the culture, that's very important. If you want a business that's going to survive with some longevity, we look for good stewards of client capital. So we take that very serious. Obviously, we're unforgiving in terms of ethics, integrity, and all that good stuff. But I would say number one above all is just quality. We want to see quality in the people, quality in the process, quality in the business. I often say we're hunting unicorns. And you know one when you see it, especially when you've been in the business a good long time. You start to recognize it pretty early. And I think our experience helps in that. If you just pick out, say, the risk management part of that process, what is it that you look for today? that might be different from 10 years ago into a hedge fund that you think manages risk well? I think it really comes down to how opportunistic and dynamic they can be with the portfolio. So you want to see both at the position level and the portfolio level, using some of the tools, whether it's shorting, whether it's hedges, whether it's dialing up or dialing down risk in the aggregate for the portfolio, you want to see some element of active risk management to try and manage through the volatility and the drawdowns. And you can see it in a track record, but when you don't have a track record to base it on, you just spend a lot of time with the manager and the team to understand what does that process look like? How is the decision-making made over time? How will they intend to act under pressure? Because pressure is going to come. Markets are humbling in that way. And then you just test that over time and you continually revisit to make sure that they're delivering on the risk management processes and that they continue to evolve. I think a lot of it is you don't want to play Monday morning quarterback either. There's a lot of noise, but understanding when they will act, how they will act, and how they will protect our clients' capital is very important to us on the hedge fund side. You look at the managers that your clients ultimately invest in, there's always this question of being on an approved list. How do you get from going through the research to say, this is a manager we're comfortable with putting in client portfolios to having a roster of managers that can be that universe that go into many different client portfolios? We do have an approved list. That is our mandate is basically to provide a pretty broad and robust list that will serve the needs of both our OCIO portfolios and how we would do it if we had discretion, as well as our advisory clients who might do things a little bit differently on their own. There's approximately 240 hedge funds on that list today. Frankly, larger than we would prefer, but at any point in time, 20 to 30% of those are closed due to capacity issues. It's a combination of our client needs and our philosophy in terms of what makes it on that list ultimately. We do actively aim to keep the list as small as we can for a number of reasons, really. We don't think there's that many great options out there, honestly, relative to the pool of opportunities. We really want to reduce the room for error and we want to express some conviction in our top ideas. So we do have 
a track record and a reputation that we're trying to preserve, we'd rather not dilute that as much as we can. When you look at the composition of those 240 managers on the approved list, how do you think about that as a portfolio across strategies, across sizes of funds, whatever it is that if you were looking at, say, a dashboard of this is our approved list, what is it that you're looking at and what does it look like? It's a constant balance of trying to maintain a good enough breadth of options across the space and a number of different variables. So different types of hedge funds, different strategy types of hedge funds, different risk profiles of hedge funds. We have the regular hedge fund buckets, long, short equity event, credit, macro. But within that, we sort of have groups of managers that we would consider core positions and groups of managers that maybe are lower or higher on the risk spectrum, which can be used to complement the core managers, if you will. So that's kind of how we think about it broadly. The chief mandate really is to just make sure that we have pretty good diversification across the entire menu of options to where we can build portfolios really to meet whatever any client objective might come our way. I think the one extremely unique thing about hedge funds is just the variability across the space. It's not the same as buying a large cap growth manager, frankly. If you buy a large cap growth, you pick maybe the Russell 1000 growth index, you try to find a manager that has a tracking error relative to that and maybe can add some alpha above that. With hedge funds, it just frankly doesn't work that way. There's too many differences, even within the same type of hedge fund, too many differences in styles, approaches, risk management, risk profiles. I often use the chef analogy. You can give me the finest ingredients in the world. I'm still not going to make you a Michelin star meal. It's similar in the hedge fund space. Too often we've seen hedge fund portfolios go off course, mainly because lack of clear objectives, lack of direction, a lack of oversight. And these portfolios do need to evolve over time to be successful. If you looked at your approved list as a portfolio, you said 240, you'd like it to be a little smaller. You have some newer managers you want to add in. How do you think about who comes in and who goes out? It's a constant balance of what capacity do we have currently? Do we have the right mix, meaning the right diversification across risk profiles, styles, strategies? What are we seeing in terms of client demand for a forward calendar? And then from there, it's relatively organic. Even if we don't see a lot of client demand for a particular opportunity, if we see a compelling opportunity, we're more than happy to add it to the list. And then it's just a constant revisiting and retesting of every manager on that list relative to the set of opportunities that are available to us in the market. And we can always upgrade. We're going to constantly try to improve that list, even if nothing else changes. Even if it's a static number, which it's not, we're going to try to improve that list over time as best we can. It comes down to a balance of what our clients need, what makes sense to add to the list, what makes sense to remove from the list. And those are the elements that go into it. What are some of the things when you think about either hedge funds or your participation in hedge funds that are different from how others might perceive you or the asset class? We spend a lot of time and resources dedicated to sourcing new opportunities. I think maybe some of the bigger misconceptions are that Mercer is large. They have very large portfolios. They have large clients that write very big tickets. That's true, but the opposite is also true. We also have very small clients. So we will do smaller managers, and that may be a misconception out there in the market. We will do emerging managers. So I mentioned 240 on that buy list today. Again, some of those are closed. Roughly 80 of those are sub 2 billion in AUM today on that list. 
a little more than two dozen of those, I think, are below 500 million in AUM. Our objective is to be early and identify that talent again before the market. And hopefully, if we've done our job, we will participate in that growth. So happy to see a small manager go from 50 million to 50 billion. If we've got it right and they've managed the capacity along the way in a good way, we've participated in that growth. And I would say equally on emerging managers, I think of the 240 today, a little more than 50 came onto our approved list within the first two years of their life. And then we have the opposite as well. We have funds that have been in business for 25, 30 years, which is a rarity in the hedge fund space and can have 30, 40, 50 billion in assets. We have the spectrum covered, hopefully, for our client base. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com allocators. That's netsuite.com allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. With the incredible breadth that you do across number of clients, types of clients, curious what you're hearing in terms of relative change in interest in hedge funds and different types of hedge fund strategies within. One thing that comes to mind definitely is the growth of the pod shops. So the multi-strategy, multi-manager platforms, if you will, now There's been significant growth in that space, really post-GFC. And these platforms have effectively replaced prop trading that used to be in the investment banks, which, frankly, they've been quite successful in doing so. But in that, they've created a bit of a talent war that's going on right now. We've seen the pass-through cost structure eat away at investor returns. So now, I think on average the end investor is keeping around maybe 45% of the gross return. And I think, frankly, we're seeing just maybe too much growth too fast at the moment. So there's a lot of people chasing this model, but we think maybe there's some overcrowding going on in the space. We're also a little concerned about the amount of leverage that is building up at individual shops, but collectively as a whole from the group. And these are, you could argue, maybe some of the strongest risk management frameworks out there. They have very low tolerance for drawdowns, very quick to sell and deleverage. We're worried about a potential snowball or waterfall of that. But I would say that a lot of investors view the multi-strategy pod shops as maybe the silver bullet or the rifle shot. So I don't need to build a diversified hedge fund program. I can just get it all in one basket with one manager here. And we think there's a little bit of danger to doing that way. Not that they can't serve as a core piece of the portfolio, but you need some diversity 
at the very least, you need to diversify that business risk. So on the margin, if you're less excited about that than you might have been a few years ago, what areas are you tilting capital towards? I wish I had something unique to say, but credit. I think credit and macro are the two areas that we are most excited about moving forward. I think everybody is well aware of the opportunity in credit. Global central bank policy has effectively removed the business cycle and the credit cycle for an extended period of time. With policy tightening, we're pretty sure that's going to reverse course in some way with rates at where they're at and the maturity walls coming. So we haven't had a distressed cycle. We really haven't had a stressed cycle in credit. And we think there's going to be some pretty exciting opportunities. I think the one difference about this, maybe relative to past credit bust, if you will, is we don't think there'll be a big moment of bust and the deleveraging. To us, this might be a more long, drawn-out period where we can produce maybe more than equity-like returns with bond-like volatility being higher up in the capital structure. And then macro, we just think volatility really across everything is going to stay elevated. So across equity markets, across credit markets, across interest rates, across commodities. And we think macro, both systematic and discretionary, are probably the best place to manage through the ebbs and flows of that volatility and changes over time for maybe the next three to five years. I would say that on our sourcing front, I probably should have mentioned that we're completely bottoms up. So I have a view that macro and credit might be more interesting than it has been for the go forward period, but I wouldn't say we're necessarily targeting that. We're looking, we've got our eyes peeled, but Again, quality trumps everything, and we're never going to force it. So if we don't find a compelling opportunity that we think makes sense for our clients in credit or macro, we won't add it to the list. Eric, I'd love to turn to your world of venture. Lots of differences structurally. As you're hearing John go through how you think about hedge fund research, what are some of the things that popped into your head as, well, that's quite different from what we need to do in venture? Yeah, I think it's the thought of being able to just fire someone easily, right? These are blind pool assets that take a long time and it's the longest gate in the asset class. So that's a little different. We have managers and GPs we like, but once the fund is set, we have a lot of monitoring if we like it or not for long term versus firing them and waiting for that gate process to discontinue that relationship. At the top of the funnel, How have you organized your team to canvas an area that's so commonly thought of as an access game in getting to the right GPs? One of the comments that John made about the asset classes having empowerment, we also have a global reach, which is fantastic. And that allows us to have our Asia team try to reach out to interesting managers in Asia. We get to understand who are the good investors from just being in the marketplace. Alternatives is a relationship industry. I would say venture is exponentially so. And as Mercer's name is out there and we're participating in conferences, we're doing good work as an LPAC member, doing good work for clients. We get recommended as well as we're talking to other LPs, we're talking to other GPs, we're talking to CEOs, asking them about their syndicate partners, who they like the best. And we start developing targeted managers to develop a relationship because it takes time, particularly with those access constrained managers. And you build that relationship, you show why you're valuable beyond just money. And you slowly start trying to find opportunities to partner together. How have you thought 
about where you want to play in venture from the earliest stages to the late stages? So that changes from whatever cycle we're in. A couple of years ago, we were not necessarily supporting your crossover late stage managers for your venture portfolio. Now, that being said, there's some good ones we backed and we would like to continue the relationship with, but we'll target certain areas. We actually have a heat map of areas that we're looking for. Early stage, let's put that aside. I think there's always a good time for early stage investing. You have to have a disbelief in the ability of the homo sapien to innovate if you're going to turn your back on early stage venture capital. But I think in the mid-stage, late and growth, you have a high-risk area because there's the technology risk still inherent in those businesses. Early stage, you know it is. They're going to ebb and flow. Mid-stage and late, you start wondering if that technology is going to work and companies are going to really adopt that product or service. And then in the growth, you're really paying for growth and expansion and sales if the technology is already baked. So sometimes that area, you can find the right manager, the right opportunity where you can have a little bit less of a risk appetite, but also get venture-like returns. At the moment, we're looking at more of a barbell strategy that very early stage and true growth, which I believe is the growth that is using to fuel extra sales, technology risk is out. The mid-stage, we're at a little bit of a risk area right now because we've fallen into a fundraising risk environment. Post this downturn, the valuations have been so high. We don't know if those mid and late stage companies that had very high valuations are truly going to grow into the investment banking metrics that justifies their existence. In the late area, there's a lot of unicorns that are going to be zombie corns, right? And that's part of our job of trying to ascertain and understand what those portfolio looks like. So at the moment, not saying all mid-stage and late-stage managers we don't like, but we're looking early and growth. How do you then dive in to assess which managers you want to partner with? Piecing together a whole bunch of things. There's understanding what references, may it be an LP reference or another GP or the CEO has said about those individuals. The ones that will be responsive to take a call, we're pretty lucky being Mercer and the clientele base that we have is so broad. We have a pretty good ability to access the most access-constrained managers. And we will do a targeted approach. Again, just as John will see anybody just about that comes through, we'll look at their deck. Doesn't mean we'll necessarily always take a call, but there's a very high percentage of them we will take a look at. And it's a combination of the targeted rifle shot approach. And then we're always an open door policy and happy to talk to managers. One element we do like is we do like to skew towards the smaller managers of each sector or asset class, smaller growth equity managers, smaller early stage managers, smaller mid-stage, because we want to begin a relationship that we can grow over time with them, allowing the clientele base to also grow and expand with that manager. What have you figured out in your due diligence process that allows you to tease out the differences between someone on the margin that 
you do want to invest with and someone on the margin that you take a pass? A lot of it is through that reference checking and the face-to-face due diligence process. Zoom is great. It makes things more efficient, but I still believe there's no replacement for face-to-face. The ability to break bread, get to understand that individual, see them in action, how they're working as a partnership, managing conflict, throwing a pro or con out there that could be a little controversial and see how they manage it. See how they even treat wait staff and hostesses if you're having a meal with them. This is a long-term asset class, sometimes longer than many marriages in the United States. You want to be partnering with these people. So sometimes it is the human element. There's a lot of great managers out there and you don't need to be partnering with jerks. As you bring that all together, as we talked about with John, how do you think about your approved list for your clients? So we try to maintain the relationships with the best of the best managers, keep an eye on those that may not be performing as well, but we're always trying to upgrade. There's some managers that change strategy. They could go from growth to small buyout and they move over to the buyout team. They could take their eye off the ball and create too many strategies, create too many platforms, and it suffers. Returns sometimes as the firm grows and creates other products, their returns diminish. So the very selective few that we are putting on an approved list has a mix of all. You have some of the new managers, and then you have your established managers, because I think there's lots of turnover that's going to be coming in the next few years, given where we are in the market and where valuations are. It's the old adage, we'll see who's wearing pants. What does your approved list portfolio look like today? It's a mix. Just as hedge fund tries to have different managers in each sector, we like to have one that has a sourcing advantage, one that has an operational expertise, one that has an expertise in a couple of core sectors, one that maybe utilizes university systems a little bit differently with student ambassadors. We just like a differentiation in the portfolio. We don't want to be hiring a bunch of venture capitalists that are going to invest in the exact same things. How many different managers or partnerships are your clients invested in? As a whole, that's hundreds. And we would have a portfolio of probably 25 to 35 private equity managers. And your venture portfolio could be anywhere between 10% of that to 50%, depending upon the client. And it's hard to give an exact number, but in venture, you have to have a few more managers than you would in buyout just because of the volatility and the risk that's inherent with them. And then sometimes it's difficult to put very large checks with many managers. How do you think about re-up decisions? Re-ups are interesting because we take a fresh look at every manager. Many managers come to us and think it's a done deal. We have a relationship. We've kept in touch with them. But it is difficult to knock out an incumbent because we have a very good manager base, but it's not an automatic ticket that they're going to get a re-up. We like to build relationships. We like to keep relationships. We have some very long relationships being decade-long investors with many GPs. We prefer that, but it's not a given. And we'll put them through the gauntlet again when it comes time for due diligence. And I'm happy to say those, 
have been persevering, but we also have a very good knowledge base on those managers because we have a much closer relationship, particularly through co-investments we might be doing with them and or secondary opportunities they may give us. How is your team organized to cover these managers, monitor them, and make decisions? We have a squad set up. So we have squad leaders that have relationships. We rate some of these relationships. We have our top relationships. We have the secondary, third. Third are probably monitoring. The fourth, we're probably not necessarily very active, but we're trying to touch base with the highest priority ones quarterly. The next set, we try to do biannually. And the squads manage that from a relationship perspective. So what we like is that a GP can come to Mercer and they have a one point in contact for everything Mercer wide. We'll manage all the clients through that one individual, through the process. And so the squads manage everybody's outreach, relationships, and the inbounds that we need to segregate across the group to determine who's going to take a call, get an understanding, and move it to research. How do you work through parsing allocations in managers that have finite capacity for Mercer as a whole? So knock on wood, we've been incredibly lucky to get access that all our clients wanted. In my 10 years of being at Mercer, we've only had to take it to an allocation committee once. Typically, the GP is the one that is picking which LPs they want and would like. In the rare case, that one, they put it to us. We had to go through an allocation committee and we have our allocation requirement that we follow to be the most fair for all the LPs that want access. Raylan, as you're listening to John and Eric walk through these processes, what's popping into your head? A couple things. One, I'm just extremely proud of the organization that we have. There's a story that actually popped into my head, and it was an individual that built a private equity program at a large U.S. public plan and decided to go become a placement agent. So now the dynamics are very different. And this individual calls me one day, says, Raylan, you guys actually respond. You actually respond to my emails. And you hear the amount of channels that we're sourcing deals from and looking at new opportunities, being responsive and actually showing that professional courtesy to all stakeholders in this ecosystem, I think really jumps out at me. There's an element, I don't want to say Eric said the word, I want to do business with jerks. But I'd say that's one of the things when coming to Mercer and having worked at prior organization, yeah, there's a very low jerk tolerance within our culture, within our institution. There's a tremendous amount of integrity. And I think that's one of the things that jumps out is the team's on top of things, but they also have that element of professional integrity. We're all mirrors, right? What you reflect is what you get back. And I think that's one of the things that we've been extremely fortunate to have people that aren't just viewing this as their job or just a means to an end, they're viewing it as something that you're getting joy out of what we're doing. And I think that could sound kind of cheesy, but to me, it's coming through in the kinds of opportunities and the teams and the structures that we've built and the success that we've had. We've had managers do reference calls on us. Are we good partners? Do we do good work? In more than one case, we've gotten good feedback there. So I think, as Eric said earlier, it's very much a partnership relationship business And we take that very seriously and value those key partnerships on behalf of our clients. 
reputation matters. And when managers call on us, oftentimes what they hear back is these are good guys and they're good partners and they do it the right way. And I would say the other thing that Raylan mentioned was we have to prioritize our time, right? That's the one thing we don't have more of. And we will be pretty candid and say, we're not interested now. We're not interested ever. It's not a good fit. Or we'll follow up with you as soon as we can. So we might not take every meeting, but the email is going to get open. We're going to look at the materials and make sure we're not passing something up. We're going to be open and honest and get back to you, give you our honest feedback, which I think is valued in the industry. I'd love to ask each of you one last question, which is what initiatives in your respective areas are most top of mind? And Eric, maybe start with venture. I've got a pet peeve right now. I've been looking at vesting schedules. There's this influx of investment bankers, mutual funds, hedge funds coming into the venture space. And this is a 10-year vehicle. Most of those funds don't end in 10 years. There's always the plus, plus, plus. I've seen an explosion of short vesting schedules of two to four to five years. And it's just not great alignment. I don't want a GP to be able to leave after two years, get 100% of their carry, sit on the beach, and now the team or the LP base have to dilute the carry to bring in another partner and then somebody reaps those benefits. I think that has proliferated. I don't know why some of the law firms have allowed this. I think it's bad for the GP as well as the LP, and I've seen some of the best funds fall apart because of that. John? I would say for me, it's really top of mind is the opportunity set. We think we're at the very early stages of a significant shift in the opportunity set, particularly for hedge funds. With interest rates at zero, it becomes very challenging. You just don't have volatility. You don't have as much dispersion. There's a lot of crowd mentality and risk assets. And that worked for a very long period. And we think you need maybe stronger risk management. You need more alternative exposures. Alternative meaning not equity, not fixed income, not necessarily all private, but you need something in the middle and hedge funds serve that role. I think the challenge that is top of mind for me is we're seeing a bifurcation. Maybe one of the best forward-looking opportunities we've seen for hedge funds in a long time, a really robust kind of new launch environment. There's a lot on our list right now that we're taking a look at and prioritize and we'll move forward with some on relative to maybe the demand in the market, which is a little bit weaker for hedge funds right now, mainly because hedge funds outperformed last year on a relative basis. And now everyone is reevaluating what do I do with my equity allocation? What do I do with my equity and alternatives allocation relative to fixed income now, given where rates have reset? And I think there's a lot of perception that we could get easier returns in traditional asset classes. And obviously I'm biased, but we think you still need that alternative exposure. So we're trying to reconcile or rectify that disparity between the opportunity set, the new launches, and maybe client demand at the moment. Really? My role is quite multifaceted and layered. You think about the responsibility I have for our team, but a lot of that also is advocating and innovating and looking at where the market's going and how do I ensure that within a broader enterprise, a fantastic large enterprise that alts is a top priority. So I spent a lot of my time on that. I think about the things that we've accomplished in securing the commitment for Marsh McLaren to grow our business. That's a first, to be that level of priority, 
to look at where we're at in terms of our data tools and technology and have the ability to say, this is a high priority and this is why. So a lot of, I'd say what's top of mind for me is where I'm seeing the client need around the world, across various segments, there's increasingly demand for certain capabilities. How do we continue to grow those capabilities? And how do I make sure that those capabilities are higher on the list of priorities versus everything else that leaders are focused on? And so I spend a lot of my time on that. And of course, I really care a lot about our team and our culture and really ensuring that folks are rising to their highest potential. Eric mentioned the squad system. I think that's been tremendously successful. I think there's ways that we can continue to evolve to maintain that specialism, but also provide all of our teams with as much exposure and empowerment, which John used, which I love that. I think we're always going to have bosses in the world, but I think empowering our teams is something I spend a lot of time on. There's a lot of new things we'd like to develop, but then we have to tailor that to our strategy globally to each region. And what's going to be important in certain regions is not going to be as important in others. But I think that balance across the continuum of research, advice, and solutions, those bring themselves their own set of priorities. I think it's just picking those top things that we can deliver that will continue our success and our growth and keeping our teams engaged isn't always easy, but I think we've done a good job. And right now, those are data tools and technology, new product innovation that clients see and demand, and I think continue to see how we fit into that total portfolio and can be a solution to clients that have different needs. I want to ask each of you two closing questions. Which person has had the biggest impact on your professional life? And Raylan, why don't we start with you? Picking one person is very difficult. I would say the person that's probably had the most impact on my professional career has probably been my husband. I call him my consulier. He often, especially in COVID, he would hear my conversation like, who are you talking to just now? And he'd give me uninvited criticism or input. But I'd say, actually, he's probably been one of the biggest influences. I think he knows my strengths. He knows where I can be pushed. And so I think my risk-taking ability, my confidence... Combining that with my just innate perseverance, I think he's been a great advocate and developer of my talent. John? Yeah, I think I have to go with my mother. She owned her own business for more than 20 years, so an entrepreneur and probably taught me the hardest work ethic of anyone I know, honestly. And really a passion and competitiveness to really succeed and win rubbed off on me a little bit. She's going to turn 70 next week. She's still working. She's still at it. I often say, I might not be the smartest or brightest guy in the room, but one thing for sure, you're not going to outwork me. And I think that has served me well, so far at least. Sounds like we have the same mother, John. That hard work ethic was something my mother was oldest of 19. She raised four kids on her own, was a valedictorian, but chose to raise four kids and taught me no matter what job I had when I worked landscaping or concrete construction or when I first started Merrill Lynch in mid-80s, she said, find the hardest working person and do circles around that person. And I just think that hard work ethic was something she instilled in me. All right. One more for each of you, Eric. We'll start with you. What's the best advice you've ever received? I would say never say never. I learned to say to GPs, not now. I don't say never, unless if they've done something ethically and they breached something terrible, that's easy. But never say never. 
because you could look at something one day and it could be the worst thing comes back a few years later and you see the progression and your mind gets changed. John? Yeah, I think mine would be over-prepare. There's been times where I've gotten out of my comfort zone and maybe out on my skis a little bit and thrown into situations maybe that were a little bit nerve-wracking for me. And the one piece of advice that's always stuck with me is over-prepare. You'll never regret over-preparing, but if you under-prepare, you might not get a second chance. So that one kind of sticks with me a little bit. Yeah, for me, it's actually in my 20s after I left Goldman and I was at Amex, my boss at the time said, like, to be successful in business, you have to learn how to play chess and play it well. If you want to succeed, you have to think five moves ahead. And that's been a huge part of, I think, my success at Mercer is thinking through what I knew was so important to us with an alt, but how I call it pushing it through Congress. <laughs> how do you get it done? And how do you do it in a way that taking feedback from others where you could view it as it being a door closing, I view it as more information. That's actually helpful. I got more information as to that person isn't supportable. Why? Let me spend more time. So I think that really impacted me early on in my career. Raylan, John, Eric, thanks so much for sharing this look inside Mercer. Thank you. Ed, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time. We'll be right back.